We're again going to be in the book of Galatians as we've been walking through. Uh, We're going to start in chapter 5 today and go verses 1 through 12. I believe it's on 825 or 826 in the the hymn, I'm sorry, the Pew Bible there, uh, if you don't have a Bible. Um, And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the large numbers are going to be the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are going to be the verse numbers. If you don't have a Bible, you can consider that our gift to you this morning. So let me begin by reading verse 1 of chapter 5 in the book of Galatians. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you who have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those that unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Well, what a powerful uh, portion of Scripture this morning. Uh, If I were going to title this message, it would be, A Liberty to Receive and a Slavery to Reject. We're going to see that Paul highlights for us a liberty that's to be received or a freedom that's to be received and a slavery that's to be rejected. Uh, in verse 1, we see it's the kind of the crescendum or the climax of what Paul said previously. Remember, last week we talked about Hagar and Sarah, Ishmael and Isaac, and that we were children of the free. And so Paul says, don't live as Ishmael's, as slaves to the law, because you've been set free in Christ. You are Isaac's. You are children of the free woman. Therefore, live in that freedom. And then it's kind of at the very top of his argument. This is like the shout of joy in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And then he exhorts them, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit to the yoke of slavery. If we are children of the free, why would we make ourselves slaves? Paul's exhorting the Galatians to live in harmony with their identity, which is found in Christ. Free from guilt, free from condemnation, free from the worship problem, whereas, wherein we uh, direct our worship towards created things and gifts rather than the gift giver, rather than the creator. And although we are set free from guilt, uh, our consciences are not always that way, right? Oftentimes we can feel the guilt of, of wrong actions or the wrong done to others, and sometimes rightly, and that, that will lead us to repentance and into godly sorrow over, over our guilt. But other times, it's this guilt that condemns, that somewhat enslaves and infringes upon our freedom. You know, we feel guilty, but we can't quite put our finger on what it is that we did or where our sin is. It's a false accusation being brought against us. It's a yoke of slavery. Friends, our consciences are free from guilt. Though we are free from guilt, free from sin, free from condemnation, 
free from the guilt of sin, we often have a hard time living free from the grip of sin. Instead of living in freedom, we, we often jail ourselves. I've heard it said like this. It's as if you, you had a, a person that was in prison for a very long period of time, confined to a cell. And after some time elapses, uh, the warden of the prison comes down and opens the cell door and says, go, walk in freedom. And the prisoner walks out of his cell door and seeing just across the hallway another cell open, walks into that cell and firmly closes the door behind him. See, so he walks out of freedom right back into slavery. He leaves one yoke or burden or slavery or prison for another. He doesn't walk out in freedom. What is this idea of a yoke and submitting to slavery? Well, there, there, there's a twofold way to look at yoke here. Um, one is, is when you followed, in Jesus' day, when you followed rabbis or, or teachers or even Pharisees, uh, typically the teaching that they had would be referred to as a yoke, right? So when you followed somebody and you're following their teachers, you were considered to be under their yoke. In the same way, if you're following Christ, you're considered to be under his yoke, under teaching. The second way to think of a yoke is typically it's a, it's a crossbar and it has two U-shaped pieces that go around the necks of oxen, right? As they tread out the grain. And so it's really heavy and they work. And so uh, there's, two, there's two holes and usually one is larger than the other and allows a little bit more freedom and the other one's really tight. So what you do is you put the seasoned ox on the inside and then the less seasoned one on the outside piece. And so uh, the, the um, new ox would learn kind of what they're doing in the field as they plow together, would learn from the older ox. It was a, a heavy, heavy burden. This idea of yoke comes up in Scripture. We see it in Acts 15.10. Uh, we're told this. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? You see, there has been a yoke set on us in slavery in the form of the law that came at Sinai, right? The children of the slave, remember he talked about Hagar being as the covenant at Mount Sinai? They, they came free from Egypt and were free from one type of slavery, the physical type. And they walked right into a spiritual slavery. Well, they were already under the spiritual slavery, but I guess they recognized their spiritual slavery. And the law came and they realized that they couldn't keep the law. But instead of crying out to God for his mercy and say, we cannot bear this, Israel thinks to themselves, yeah, we can do that. And then proves over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament that indeed they cannot bear that burden. That's why we hear, see here in Acts, he's saying that neither the fathers nor the disciples could bear this burden. Paul here is pointing out that to try and attain salvation by human effort, by human exhortation, it's folly. It's a yoke that we are unable to bear that will bring us down. It is a yoke that will crush us beneath its weight. It's also reminding us that Jesus said these words in Matthew eleven, twenty-nine 29 through 30. He says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Sin is a heavy yoke. And that's why Paul, it's startling here that he uses the word again, right? 
I don't know if you noticed that. He says, don't submit to the yoke of slavery again. And what he's doing here, he's talking to the Galatians, and they're pagans, right? They're pagan idol worshipers. They're kind of amoral liberals, if you will. And what he's saying is, don't submit again to the yoke of slavery as they try to align themselves with the Judaizers, with that teaching that you believe in Jesus and then you do the Mosaic law, right? You get circumcised, you follow these other things, and that brings you salvation. It's a false salvation. He says, don't submit to that yoke of slavery again. And what he's doing is he's equating once more the amoral liberalism or pagan idol worship with the moral conservatism of the Jews, of the Judaizers. He's saying it doesn't matter if you're a moral conservative and that you keep all the laws with your white-knuckle approach, and it doesn't matter if you're worshiping idols in the temple. Both are forms of slavery that will condemn you because you're not perfect. It might be slavery to religion and religious activities, what you can do on your own, or it might be slavery to these false gods that are in your life, living in a way that is amoral. Both are forms of slavery. Don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. You've been walking in the pagan idolatry, but this moralism that you're moving towards, it's the same yoke. It's moving from one cell right across to the other. It's still slavery. And loved ones, you're free from that in Christ. The yoke that, of the teaching of the Pharisees was as the, the crossbeam that's laid across the oxen. Very heavy. Yet, the yoke of Christ is as the arms of the Father around our necks. It is a freedom to be in joy. It is a light an easy yoke. So as Paul shows us in this section, he, he exhorts in verse 1 to stand fast, stand firm in our freedom. He's also going to exhort us to know the value of freedom, to run in freedom, and to wait in freedom. Know the value of freedom. Look with me at verse 2. Paul says this, Look, I, Paul... It's important that he says, I, Paul, here. Like, he's told him it's him a bunch of times already, right? Remember, all the way back the first week we did this, he, he says, I, Paul, an apostle. He says, not by myself, but through God. He's reminding them again in this chapter. He's bringing out the force of the authority that he has as God's representative, as God's advocate. He's, so he's putting the full force of his authority behind it. He's very sincere. This is what he writes. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage or of no value to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. The issue here, as it has been throughout all of Galatians, is still justification that they would be justified by what they do or how they live rather than in Jesus alone. Remember we talked about the idea of justification as being declared righteous or declared right with God. And Paul's pointing out here once more that you cannot be perfected by keeping the law of Moses. He's saying it's silly to start with Jesus and then take on this heavy yoke. That's not freedom. It's slavery. You are Isaacs and you're subjecting yourselves again to the life of Ishmael. Particularly the, the issue that's in view here that's kind of been implicit throughout the rest of the letter to this point, we've mentioned it a few times, and now it comes to the forefront, is circumcision. 
They're saying if you follow Christ, that's all well and good. But you need the mark or the sign that you are one of God's people truly, is what the Judaizers, the false teachers are saying. Therefore, you need to be circumcised in addition to keeping the law of Moses. And again, Jesus comes back, or Paul comes back and has said, no, it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. In other words, he's saying a supplemented Christ is a supplanted Christ. A supplemented Christ is indeed a supplanted Christ. You see, the gospel of grace is incompatible with human pride and with human effort. It is oil and water, if you will. Your effort, when you try to be saved by your own activities, whether it's pagan idolatry or biblical moralism, you are putting yourself in metaphorical quicksand. The more you strive and try to attain the gift, to attain the promise on your own merit, the faster you sink. And the only way to get out of it is to simply relax and call for the help of Christ. To be freedom, to be in freedom. Those that seek to be justified by circumcision, adherence to the law, and the Jesus Plus program, those that seek to supplement Christ and thereby supplant Him, are severed from Christ, cut off from Him, lost. Can salvation be lost? Uh, concisely, no. <laughs> and, uh, there are many places in the, the Scripture that point us to this fact. Uh, we'll see it in a minute in verses 5 and 6. But uh, a good way to kind of summarize the, the Bible's teaching on this is to say that perseverance is proof of possession. Perseverance is proof of possession that those that are truly in Christ, those that are truly the sheep of the good shepherd, hear his voice. They know his voice and they never forget it. They walk with the shepherd throughout the entirety of their lives. Friends, we didn't earn our salvation, nor can we unearn it. That which isn't earned can't be unearned. No, we simply rest in Christ. Perseverance is a proof of our possession. Continuing to trust in Christ will make Him our treasure. will make Him to our advantage. As Paul says that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage or value to you. So if you accept circumcision, you're obligated to keep the whole law. We're told in the book of James and elsewhere that he who breaks just the smallest portion of the law is guilty for breaking all of it and falls under condemnation. Remember, if you get a speeding ticket, you're guilty of breaking the law in the United States. God's law, you know, maybe you live your whole life perfect. I doubt it. But maybe you've lived your whole life perfect and you tell one little lie. You're guilty of breaking all of the law and you've fallen short. You can't keep the whole law. And so if you trust in self, if you trust in circumcision, rather than in Christ alone, you have made Christ as trash. He will be of no advantage to you. You've made him valueless if you trust in your own effort rather than in his perfect effort on the cross. Christ will be your trash or he will be your treasure. We need to know the value of Jesus Christ. That value is of infinite worth. That value is everything. Jesus and nothing else is everything. It's life eternal. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Paul is beating the gospel drum throughout Galatians and he's going to continue 
until we finish this book. Jesus is his point. The point of the gospel is Jesus. The point of the Bible is Jesus. Are you right with Jesus? Is he your treasure? Or have you discarded him as trash? Know the value of Jesus. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. He brings you into freedom. Therefore, stand fast in that freedom. Know the value of that freedom. We're going to skip down to verse 7 and come back to deal with verses 5 and 6. We're going to see here that we need to run in freedom. Paul writes, You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Paul's simply saying, You're off the trail. You know, if you've ever gone hiking, typically the trail is marked with little, uh, usually like paint or spray paint, something like that. It's blazoned on the trees so that you know you're still on the trail. Or if you're driving, maybe this would be a little bit more pertinent. You're driving and you see signs on a road that you've never been on before. There'll be, you know, like this little arrow on a yellow sign in black, and it'll point that a really sharp turn is coming up. It's a warning that, hey, if you're not ready to turn here in a second, you're going to go off the road. Paul's telling him, hey, somebody's cut in on you. Somebody's hindering you from running the race. You're off the path. But see, Paul's warning is is as a a trailblazing. His warning is as roadside. It's the grace of God to these people. He's not telling them that they can lose their salvation. right? He's saying, but be careful. Know the value of Christ lest you find yourself on the wrong road. Lest you find yourself cut in on, hindered. He's reminding them of their position in Christ. Uh, you know, when I lived in Raleigh and Chelsea and I first got married, we, we lived a few places before we got here, all right? We've been married three years. We've, we've moved like four or five times. It's a bit of a headache. Hopefully not for a long time. We won't have to move. It's not, not my favorite thing. Anyhow, Chelsea and I moved from, from one place in Raleigh to, to another just across town in Wake Forest. Really... They're about maybe four miles apart. And the place that we worked at at the time, we worked for the PGA Tour. We were doing catering and all kinds of fun stuff. And so uh, it was kind of in the middle. Um, And so, you know, typically at night I would get off from work and it would be late, like midnight or 1 o'clock. So everybody that would come and have their weddings or have their event, have a good time and, you know, party. And it comes midnight, they get to go home and go to sleep. And we would still be there, like, cleaning up and resetting the room, tearing up, setting down. So... You come out of there pretty tired. Um, For those of you that have worked in the restaurant industry, you know that there's this um, magical, mysterious film that gets all over your skin that makes you smell like restaurant and just feel gross. Uh, And so you're just really exhausted. You you smell gross. You feel like you probably look gross, and you're just ready to go home. And so when we first moved uh, the first time across town, I, I remember coming out of work, and there were just a few times where I would get in the car, And I would just be driving along, not really thinking about anything aside from like, man, I can't wait to get into bed, get a nice shower, uh, and just be ready for the next day. You know what I found was uh, a couple times I ended up in my old driveway. And uh, it's just this weird phenomenon. I just wouldn't be thinking. And I would be like in my parking space at the little apartment complex we lived in. And then I would go, oh, (laughs) oh, yeah, we, we moved. I don't live here anymore. I need to... I took a left back there, but I needed to to make a right to get to where my new house is. Paul similarly is warning them. It's kind of like he's in the passenger seat. He's saying, hey, no, 
You need to take a right, not a left. You don't live there anymore. The house of slavery, the yoke of the Pharisees, you don't live there anymore. It's the house of freedom. Turn right, not left. This warning is the grace of God. He's reminding them of their position. Keep running the race with perseverance and in the right direction, on the right path. This persuasion, this idea that you need to go back to the old house, it's not from Him who called you. It's not from Christ. He says in verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now this idea might be a little bit foreign to you. Um, It's foreign to me because I don't do a whole lot of cooking. But leaven is is apparently a little bit like, like yeast, I think. I'm not sure. But it makes like the bread rise up when you, when you bake it. You only need a little bit of it when, you, when you're mixing it in with your other ingredients. But when you put that little bit in, it affects everything. So he's kind of saying about these false teachers that have come in or trying to persuade the Galatians in the way of falsehood, in the way of Jesus Plus program. He's saying to, to the Galatians, hey, this one false teacher in your midst, just a little bit of false teaching sprinkled in is going to affect all of you. It's going to bleed down throughout the whole church. And it's going to cause division. It's going to cause suffering. It's going to cause a lack of unity. He's saying, a small spark starts a fire. It's kind of like if I were talking to you in your home, and we, we came around the corner into your living room, and your couch were on fire. And you said to me, I said, hey man, your couch is on fire. We need to call the fire department and get out of here. And you no, no big deal. Listen, that's just a really small portion of my house uh, where the couch is on fire. Uh, not, not a problem. Don't worry about it. No sweat. No, man, your couch is on fire. That's a problem. The house is going to burn down unless we snuff out the fire. We need to put it out. In the same way in the church of God, sometimes false teachers, sometimes wolves make their way into our midst. And they need to be dealt with. In the same way that your sin needs to be dealt with. They need to be killed. Wolves need to be taken outside and have a bullet put in them. Metaphorically. That's why it's important that you go out to Herschel's and learn to shoot a little bit. (laughs) Chelsea and I did that the other day. It was lots of fun. Metaphorically. Metaphorically. Verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will not take another view than mine. The one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Verse 10, Paul is saying again, he's confident in the salvation of the Galatians. Even though he warned them, hey, don't fall from grace, back in verses 2 through 4. Don't fall from grace, don't accept this false teaching. He's still here saying, I'm confident that you're going to be able to tell right from wrong. I'm confident that you have heard the voice of the Good Shepherd. Confident that you know Christ and that you will endure to the end, that your perseverance will prove that you are possessed by Jesus Christ, that you are in Him. After affirming them, He now turns His attention to those false teachers, to those wolves that are dressed like sheep. And they, they must have been likable people, right? Paul comes in, teaches them Jesus, and they're living free in Christ. And then these folks kind of infiltrate the church. Way back when, in chapter 1, we talked about. Uh, false teachers often look a little bit angelic. They've got great smiles. They're well-groomed. Funny. They're attractive people. 
They're subversive. They're tricky. And Paul's saying that he's warned them, and now he's saying they are going to bear the penalty of teaching falsely. James tells us that not many of you should presume to be teachers because you're going to be judged more strictly. And his judgment for those that have subverted the gospel surely will be intense and terrifying. Paul speaks of it in chapter 1. when He says, those of you that would teach falsely, I hope that you are anathema, accursed. You go to hell. That's the type of judgment that we're speaking of here. Verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Paul here is pointing out, uh, he's obviously uh, referencing something that's been said about him. Uh, They're going, uh, likely the Judaizers are going, hey, your friend Paul, he even preaches circumcision. He, He wants Jesus in circumcision. And Paul's saying that's not true at all. The way they would have been able to make this argument, I think, is uh, Paul was a Pharisee in his old life, right? So he would have been, he actually tells us in Philippians, circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew among Hebrews, and he's talking about how awesome he is. Uh, That's not his point, though. His point is that he can't boast in those things. Uh, That's a rabbit trail, though. We're coming back here. Uh, So he's saying, um, I'm not, I don't live in the Pharisee life anymore. That's not who I am. I don't still preach circumcision. Did I have Timothy circumcised in Acts? Yeah, but as an act of contextualization to go in and to speak with Jews, not as a method of justification or of salvation. If I would have had Timothy uh, to cut himself in order to gain salvation, he would have been cut off from Christ. Paul no longer preaches circumcision. He doesn't preach works righteousness. He preaches grace. Then he says this, in that case, if I did preach salvation by works or salvation by Jesus plus and Jesus, by, and Jesus plus circumcision, the offense of the cross has been removed. Paul's saying here that the cross does offend people. It's a stumbling block to those that think they need not salvation. It's foolishness to those that are perishing. But to those that are being saved, it is the power of God. Love what Dr. Schreiner says about this verse, and so I'm just going to quote him at length here. The fundamental root of all persecution is resistance to the gospel. The world despises the cross, for the cross pronounces a thunderous no to all human goodness. The cross lays us bare before God and exposes our wickedness and evil. The cross reminds us that the solution to the human problem is death and resurrection. While we as human beings think that we can be reformed and transformed with education and civilizing influences, when the message of the cross breaks breaks in upon the human consciousness, we either repent or are enraged at such an affront to our egos. We long for a gospel that commends us, that makes us feel good about ourselves, and exalts us. The cross, however, renounces human potential. It teaches us to relinquish our hope that human beings can construct a just and good society. The new creation only comes through the cross. But the cross is not the last word. The last word is the resurrection. The cross is indeed offensive and a stumbling block to those that are perishing. Paul, however, finds these false gospels as that which is truly offensive to the holy. 
And he makes his feelings about that false gospel and that teaching very apparent in verse 12. He writes, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate or mutilate themselves. Um, Paul's kind of saying this with a little sarcastic indignation. If removing a little foreskin makes you more holy, well, then you might as well go the whole way and just cut it all off. Mutilate yourself. Be as eunuchs. Get eunuchified. You want to be holy? Really get holy. Becoming eunuchs uh, in, in more than one way would have identified the, the Judaizers or those that did that uh, with a contemporary um, pagan cult that thought that they would get close to this, um, this idol that they had erected for themselves by uh, self-mutilation. And so Paul is again drawing a fine line from uh, biblical moralism and uh, amoral uh, pagan-like living, pagan idolatry. He's equating the two. Saying the antinomian and the, the lawkeeper the one that lives in license and the one that lives according to the law are equally condemned and outside of the gospel. He's, making the, he's saying, make your heresy explicit. Don't pretend like it makes you holy or that it's, it's in any form what Judaism means for circumcision to mean. It's not justification. Go ahead and make your heresy explicit. He wants those that cut in on the Galatians as they were running to cut themselves. He says it. Fiercely, with anger, because he is defending the gospel of truth. It's a very serious matter. He's exhorted us to stand in freedom, to know the value of freedom, to run in freedom. And now if you'll go back to um, verse 5 with me, we're going to look at verses 5 and 6. He tells us to wait in freedom. This, I think, is the heartbeat of Paul's message here. I think this is the heartbeat of our little pericope this morning. Let me read it to you. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Paul here is again bringing out a tension that kind of, it's in Galatians and it's throughout Scripture, of the already, what's already true, and the not yet. And we talked about this before. Remember, we talked about justification being declared right with God and sanctification becoming in practice what God has declared us to be in truth. And so there's that same tension coming out. You're already declared right, but you're not yet actually righteous, right? Still sin. If you're being honest with yourself, you're like, yeah, I still sin. And Paul tells to the Galatians in three in chapter 3, verse 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you're now being perfected by the flesh? Say, oh, well, we, we started with Jesus, and now we think that we can become perfect, actually righteous, rather than just declared righteous, on our own. We've got Jesus, and now human effort's going to get us the rest of the way there. And Paul is saying, no, that's folly. He says in Philippians, uh, I love this verse, he says in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus is going to finish what He started. He has declared you righteous, and you will be perfectly holy at the end of all things when He returns. It's important to note what the word hope means here. It says uh, that we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. The word hope here does not have the weaker uh, meaning that it does in English, like I hope it doesn't rain today, or 
hey, I really hope that the, the Mountaineers don't get blown out by Baylor tonight. Um, it, it doesn't mean that. Rather, it means a powerful assurance. It means a certainty. It means totally assured and awaiting. The Galatians can be totally assured of the hope of righteousness, that Christ will return and finish what he started, that they have been declared holy, that you, friends, and I have been declared holy, that we are loved by God, and that he is going to perfect us. He's going to perfect our moral condition and our physical condition. Verse 6, real quickly. Since for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. I love the way Alistair Begg uh, comments on this verse. He says this. He says, circumcision or uncircumcision? Shut up. It doesn't matter. Just, just shut up if you're preaching circumcision or uncircumcision, because it doesn't matter. Only saving faith matters. Only Jesus matters. We are saved by faith alone. But saving faith is never alone. The Spirit's fruit will be evident in our lives as we have our affections reoriented towards loving Christ rather than things. We will learn to love God and love neighbor. Faith will be working through love. We are set free in Christ, and so we stand in freedom. We know the value of freedom. We run in freedom, and we wait in freedom. We're waiting to be perfected physically and morally. We groan for new bodies and for a new moral condition. Holiness. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, as we await eagerly the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Or in Hebrews 9, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you waiting for perfection to come? Or are you trying to perform your way into perfection? Here's Paul's question again. Are you an Isaac? Or are you an Ishmael? Are you slave or are you free? Are you under a heavy yoke? Or the yoke of Christ? Have you been set free? Dear ones, you can be free. You need only trust Jesus and wait for him to finish the work he started in you. Live in freedom. Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you are good that you have begun a good work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit and that you're going to bring that work to completion. That you make good on your promises and just as you promised Abraham to make him the father of many nations and a blessing to all people, just as you have kept that promise by blessing us, we know that you will keep this promise. We hope 
for that righteousness that is to come. We await, totally assured, the the renewing of our bodies, the redemption of our bodies, the redemption of our moral condition, the restoration of all things, true elation, true happiness, true joy. It's found in you alone. You are our peace. And in you alone, we rest. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.